Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Um, my guest today was my uncle, Joseph Alsop. Uh, my uncle was the CEO of a company called Progress Software, which he started and then he took all the way to IPO, which is so, so rare. Uh, and so it's been a great gift that I've had in my life uh, in order to come to him for, for the wisdom on, on how to be an entrepreneur, how to start a company, how to do all these things. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm offering that wisdom uh, out to the listeners who may be interested in starting a company. Um, and it's not easy. And, and uh, Joe here has some valuable advice on what it means to start a company and what it means to go through years, decades of starting something and then having it come to this stable position and then all the changes that are inherent in that process. Like, you know, Buddhism talks about the nature of change all the time and that things are constantly changing and and how do we adapt to this constantly changing environment? And when you start a company, it's like that, but on steroids, uh, everything is changing all the time. And how do you set up the company in a way where when the good times are good, you enjoy it, but then you also realize the bad times are coming. There, there are going to be bad times. So how can you set the company up to both thrive and survive during those bad times too? So hopefully this is helpful. Um, I, I, I think Joe gives a lot of great practical learnings from his time doing it and of course like all of this advice all of this learnings from other people has to be applied subjectively through your own understanding and really the only way you're going to figure it out is, is is to do it on your own all these things can just are just pointers uh and and it's a really bad idea to rely on advice uh for actual learning so hope you enjoy this um i want to let everybody know i'm doing breathwork sessions throughout the day um uh, about six six breathwork sessions. They're only ten minutes long, and if you are starting a company or if you are working at a company, they are a really great way to kind of let go of the past, come back to what's going on right now, breathe. And there's a lot of evidence about what it happens, all the benefits that happen once we start to redirect our attention towards the breath. Um, and so I'm offering these sessions in a way that hopefully will help you get through your workday in a more clear, equanimous way. So if you are interested in these very short 10-minute breathwork sessions, please reach out to me on Twitter. My DMs are open at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, uh, and just send me your email and I'll add you to the list where I send an email every every evening of, of, the, of the following day's uh, schedule for the breathwork sessions. So yeah, if you enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher by searching for Crazy Wisdom and leaving us a review if you if you really enjoyed it. I uh, hope you hope you do. Have a great day. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom podcast. Uh, my guest here is Joseph Alsop, Alsop, my uncle uh, and former CEO of Progress Software, entrepreneur for how long? How long? How long? <laughs> Stuart has probably been thirty-five years or so. Wow. Uh, and how long have you running Progress Software? I was CEO of Progress Software from basically its inception in the early 80s until 2009. And what was the most stressful thing about running Progress Software? I think it was um, certainly in the early days uh, worrying about whether we were going to make it or whether we were going to lose our investors' money. Um, and then later on, you just go through different challenges as the company grows, uh, people issues, organizational issues, what's the best way to set up the organization, uh, future direction of products, uh, how do you make sure that you're essentially outsmarting the competition so that you can continue to grow and so that they, if they're larger companies, they can't crush you. Um, so I, I think one of the things about being a founder slash CEO is is that issue of uh, growing through different phases of a company's growth because you, you have to focus on different things, you know, ranging from sheer survival in the beginning to growth and how to deal with it to market share to how to expand the product line um, and all the various issues that come from success.
So what was the hardest lesson for you personally to learn about the le lesson of success? Because there's the lessons of like, not necessarily failure, but lessons of silences, silence in the beginning where just nobody's paying attention to you. And then you start reaching that success point. What was the most difficult thing about that? Probably it was dealing with people issues. Yep. Um, making sure that you're working with a team that's motivated, engaged, uh, focused on the success of their of the company as opposed to their own personal success. And there's a, a particular um, story there that when a company is growing very quickly, sheer growth brings tremendous expansion of, of responsibilities for everyone. So everyone at every level in the in the in the company, every two years, their job is doubling both. Mm in terms of, of what they're managing and in terms of the different skills they need to bring to the table. If the growth slows down a little bit, then people start competing with each other over open positions and things like that, and you suddenly mm. discover that you're dealing with, quote, company politics, unquote, rather than everyone staying focused on the goal of growing a successful business. And that's a that was a tough transition for me as I came to realize that we weren't as aligned as we had been in the earlier in the higher times. growth phase. Exactly. So yeah, it's this essential thing that which is kind of seems like a life principle is that when times are good, everybody's having fun. But then once things start to contract or, or turn, uh, then every all those things that were seeming under underneath start to come up and play. That's a absolutely uh, absolutely correct. That that. In the early days, or in the high growth phase, exactly what you said, that mm -hmm. everyone's focused on the success of the enterprise and the, the quote, company politics, unquote, really shows itself only when, when uh, growth slows down mm -hmm. and people don't have a job that naturally grows just because the company's growing. So if, if, if somebody's starting a company today and they're reaching this kind of, maybe they just raised their seed round or their series A round and they're starting to hit that hyper growth stage and they want to understand what they can do for their company before they reach this, this, this what they can do to set up the company in a way that makes it easier in those hard times, what would it be? Well, I'd make a couple of comments. Yep. One is that if you feel you need to make changes, it's always tempting to wait and uh, see if things, quote, work out or not, unquote. And my input would be that it's much easier to make those changes when things are going really well because you naturally sort of have the wind at your back, uh, the company's growing, everyone's feeling good about themselves and the company. And if you wait until things slow down and then say, oh, darn, I should have you know, taking that person out of that position and put in someone else, or I should reorganize this part of the company. It'll just be that much tougher to do it when times are slower because times are slower and there isn't as much natural motivation and there'll be more conflict, uh, whereas there might have been, might have been much easier to make those changes when everything's going well. So my attitude is sort of, be very positive when things slow down because people need that, mm. need to have that feeling. Be a bit more critical, a bit more demanding when things are going well yeah. because you've got the wind at your back at that point. It's easier to make change. Momentum, basically. So when things are going well, uh, don't necessarily follow the momentum and think like, oh, okay, I don't need to do anything. Actually get your head yeah. down and realize, think about what will happen when there is going to be a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you have to be a contrarian thinker that when everyone else is celebrating success, you've got to be thinking around the next corner about, well, okay, but what I need to be doing for the situation where there might be a change or a slowdown a couple of years down the road. Is that stressful for you personally to be a contrarian thinker or does that actually light, <laughs> light something up for you? No, it comes naturally. Yeah. Interesting. Can anybody train that? Can you um, train that to somebody else or is it... Well, I'll, I'll say that one way I encapsulate this is short-term pessimistic, long-term optimistic, yep. or perhaps more positively said long-term optimistic, short-term pessimistic. So I'm a long-term optimist that 
in the end, things are going to work out well. But I'm a short-term pessimist in terms of, or I try to be, short cycles. in terms of focusing on what can go wrong in the short to medium term and trying to deal with it before it becomes an absolute crisis. Mm. So I would love to talk about contracts and the importance of contracts, what you've learned about contracts. So for somebody starting their business out, what is it about the contract that's most important? Is it the legal side of it where you get a lawyer to go over it, or is it just the thinking about your, the way you do business and the, how you want to do business with other people? Okay, so there are various forms of contracts. You know, uh, For example, uh, for the longest time we had no employment contracts. We relied on, uh, well, first of all, we didn't want to hold people if they didn't really want to go, but for retention, motivation and reward, we relied heavily on, on stock options, which, by the way, um, have a lot of holding power if the company's doing well because people sense that, okay, one way or another, I'm going to make money on this, but i got to stick around until I'm fully vested and, and uh, hmm. until there's some opportunity for liquidity, whatever that might be. So we, well, at an employee level, we had the standard protection of the company in terms of an invention and trade secret agreement, which basically protects the company's IP. Uh, we generally did not have employment contracts. We generally did have um, stock options for pretty much everyone in the company. So that's that side of it. The other major side, of course, is the, is the contractual arrangements with the customers. And I'm a believer in generally trying to keep those as simple as possible with the focus on protecting the company's downside if something goes wrong with the relationship with a customer. Um, one of the challenges for companies that are selling to other large companies or to, to large companies is that generally speaking, uh, if it's an IP-related business like the software business that Progress Software was in, um, those companies will try to impose fairly onerous mm. uh, contractual terms. In that regard, um, the SaaS software is, is uh, a service subscription model, subscription licensing, that kind of thing, are a godsend because if you can accept the business model, which yields less money up front, in return you can generally have much simpler con contractual relationships because you can always say to the prospect, well, you know, if we're not doing a good job, you just don't renew the contract, don't renew the subscription, don't renew the SaaS arrangement, whatever. Um, so I try to keep things in the customer-facing direction as simple as possible with the exception of protecting the company's IP mm. and protecting the company from major lawsuits. Mm. Did you guys have any lawsuits? Of course. <laughs> any successful company has lawsuits. Interesting. Um, I mean, you know, there are the issues where a customer doesn't pay and maybe you're suing them. Right. Um, we had very, very few where a customer or partner of some kind actually initiated litigation against us. In fact, I'm struggling to remember any situations, uh, precisely because we were so careful to mm. both keep it simple uh, and keep the company protected when we entered into a relationship. I'll give you another uh, quote that suddenly pops into my mind, which actually, uh, and this has to do with software uh, contracts in general, where, where uh, someone who worked for a well-known software company said, the main thing we think about when we enter into an agreement is how to get out of it. <laughs> and uh, certainly we got into, we at Progress Software did a couple of deals where we didn't think through well enough how we would uh, terminate the arrangement, the contract, the relationship, if it just wasn't working for us anymore. And, and that, was, that was costly in a couple of cases, but you know, we kind of learned from that that you really should focus not just on the what the benefit is for the company of the deal short term, but also how that relationship might evolve and how you might be able to to bring it to an end if that's in the best interest of the company. 
So that's really interesting. So begin with the end in mind is a really important thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Begin, yes, begin with the vision of how you're going to work yourself out of this if it no longer serves your interest. Does it also make sense to do that when you're hiring an employee or whether when you're building the company itself, should you think of the end in mind? Um, I think it's harder with employees. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to go into an employee relationship with a positive attitude. Um, obviously, the employee can can leave on fairly short notice, and you have to be prepared to deal with that. Um, if, on the in the other direction, if you decide that someone isn't working out, well, you know, if they have an employment agreement, you have to adhere to that, but otherwise uh, it can be terminated on fairly short notice. So mm-hmm. you hope for a long-term relationship and you just deal with mm-hmm. the consequences if it just doesn't work out, which in my opinion, normally at the end of a few months, if it's not working out, you kind of know in your gut. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but you typically don't take action until a couple more months. So maybe at the six-month point is, is when you go to the person and say, hey, look, this isn't working, and we both need to make a change. So that, that gives us two options for conversation. There's the relationship between gut feeling and logic and how you, do, how you work with that, or if you're more excited to talk about it, how you envision, how you place competition, knowing that competition is out there. Which one do you find more interesting, gut or competition? Um, if you're doing well and you're innovating, certainly in the software industry, competition is important, but that's secondary. So let's talk about first about your first question, which is kind of what's the right mixture between, uh, let's call it logical thinking through of of issues versus uh, doing something based on your gut. Mm. And in my experience, the basic direction is is pretty much set by gut or instinct or um, some kind of uh, some kind of foresight. Um, searching for the word uh, intuition, um, and then it has to be moderated by some plan, at least thought through to a certain level of how you might get there. And, and I have lots of examples of how uh, a company might have gotten started with, with one idea in mind and then that's evolved over time, although typically um, it's still in the same general area or same direction that, that uh, you originally were headed in. Um, and I'd say there's another issue that you have to think through, which is when it's still a bit ill-formed in one's own mind, how do you get the organization behind something which typically they don't see? Um, I'll give you a, a specific example from the progress experience, which um, may be instructive. So in the late 90s, um, there came to be this thing which was initially known as ASP and later became known as SAS, which now most people are familiar with software as a service. Um, but ASP was what it was called back then, and we wanted to make a move in that direction, and, and actually we did a pretty clever job of it. Uh, we hosted a, a conference in Aspen, Colorado, mm. ASPEN, ASP enablement. Um, we brought various in- industry analysts there. We gave them, you know, free ski passes and free lodging. We talked about what we were doing in this area that later became known as SAS. Um, and that went pretty well. Um, the failure, and, and that's really my failure, was because people sort of got it at a bit of an intellectual level, but not at a truly emotional level, I probably failed to push it hard enough within the company so that we ended up Felt being a, a real leader in the SaaS arena as opposed to a, a player, but not a leader. Um, so that's just an example of where the leader of an organization has to take the organization in a direction which the organization as a whole, no matter how many times you say it, um, kind of doesn't really grasp it. I mean, by contrast, 
one thing that Progress did very well and developed very early on is, is working on a partnership level with other software companies. And that just sort of became part of our DNA. We just sort of knew how to do that from the top of the organization to the bottom. Uh, but that had been inculcated in the organization very early on. So it was, you know, if anything, we, we sort of training a whole new set of beliefs and behavior to an organization that's been successful in a particular direction. That's the challenge. Mm. Knowing that it's going to change, knowing that, that whatever you're dealing with is going to change, and it's going to change in some direction, which you might have insight into, but the rest of the organization doesn't necessarily right. have insight into, and how do you shift that their thinking towards that yes and you you have to be um, pretty adamant about the new direction or it will kind of die on the vine mm. because uh, the natural everyone's natural instinct is look if we're successful at a and b why are we bothering with x y and z mm. let's yep. just do more of a and b mm. that's what we're good at whether it's product issues or whether it's distribution channels, partnerships, uh, sales approach, uh, the way we support customers, any of those things. Those things are all sort of baked into the organization. People say, hey, we're really good at this A, B, and C stuff, and now the CEO is off talking about X, Y, and Z, and, and we don't have a clue what he's talking about. So and how much you have to work at it. How much of that comes from the like upper executives? Are they? I, mean, I guess this is relative, but are they, are they usually harder or easier to get on board? Who is the hardest thing? Is it like low-level employees? Is it, is it? It can be at any level in the organization. Yeah. Most mm -hmm. of the time, because you interact more directly, although not just with the, the management team, or in, in the case of uh, Progress Software, it was called the executive team, or ET. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because you interact with those people on a pretty regular basis, you have more of a chance to convince them. There are other venues. We would have company meetings mm -hmm. on a regular basis, company emails and so on and somehow you can say it you can write it um, but it just takes mm. a lot of effort and some time to really inculcate a new direction in an organization so that it uh, accepts and, and moves in that direction and executes in that direction and that's really interesting because I've been reading this book called behave by Robert Sapolsky about the neurobiology of behavior and essentially this intuition all these things are based in really like deep evolutionary kind of things that are sure. like really in software you'd call them close to the hardware essentially like where it's like these are the things we share with amphibians and with with mammals like sure. emotional things like and those things are the hardest to get to in terms of influencing people and it has to be done emotionally and you can't do it through this logical brain la rational thinking and stuff like that that's just like the rational brain which most people identify primarily with is actually in the West um, is actually this rational brain is actually just a post facto thing that helps yes. us rationalize our behavior before post facto is a good phrase so mm -hmm. after the fact you you apply a layer of rationalization to something that really emanates from a deeper mm -hmm. level of uh, emotion or intuition or whatever it might be mm -hmm. and I agree with that and and it's the job of the CEO among other jobs to mm -hmm. uh, essentially either him or herself being out in front of the organization or having a, a very tight group of advisors that can point direction in the future and then communicate that to the rest of the organization at a simpler, uh, more gut feel level so that they can buy into it just as you're describing. Mm. And so what are the other roles of the CEO, and maybe this is best at a level, like what's the role of the CEO at the, at the first stage when you're raising seed, stage, seed, seed money or Series A? What's the role once you've gotten you know, into that hypergrowth? And then what's the role as you're in this stasis, like now we've got hypergrowth, we're a player, um, we're a leader, like what are the roles, or what are the most important roles that the CEO plays? Um, certainly in the early days, it's setting the basic direction of the company. I'd say that comes first before money raising because mm. you don't have a basis on which to raise funding unless you've got a clear-cut direction in terms of a particular market you're going after uh, with a particular product or service uh, idea initially and 
uh, you know, somewhere in the process of being realized. So that's that's the first stage. Um, and typically, you know, there may only be, in the case of progress, there were uh, three or four people involved and a lot of debate over uh, various issues like what platform to deliver on, uh, what exactly, how the product would operate. It's a software product for uh, developing business applications. Uh, so how the product would work, both when you are developing the application, deploying it. So there's a whole bunch of issues there that, that until you've got those settled and agreed on and there's a consensus at some level as to where you're going, you're not going to be able to convince some outsider to invest money into the company. Mm -hmm. So in our case, the money raising process went fairly smoothly and uh, we had uh, good relationships with our two or three lead investors. Um, of course, the company performed well, so there was never, there were, there were times when things were a bit slower, but there was never a kind of a super crisis point at which we might have um, been at loggerheads with our investors, so that never happened. And um, it was roughly seven years from when we uh, first uh, had investment to when we went public, and the investors then had the liquidity of you know distributing or selling or whatever they might want to do. Um, and uh, so during those seven years, it was a pretty, you know, and it, at the time it didn't feel this way, but in <laughs> retrospect, it was a pretty smooth uh, growth path. That's really interesting. Is there any mistake or thing that somebody didn't, somebody should think about in terms of aiming for that IPO thing? You know, aiming for that liquidity, or not, and I'm not, I don't mean aiming for the liquidity as the final goal, but as in set your company up, get to the IPO stage. What in between that could have worked better for you or for progress or for another company that's, that okay. has a big goal? So, first of all, we were not at all focused on IPOs or, or anything like that. We, when we did go public, we went public for three reasons. One was to um, enhance the visibility of the company, so part of our marketing efforts. Um, the second was to make it possible to do acquisitions using our shares as currency as opposed to just cash. And the third was, as I mentioned earlier, it was seven years out, so we wanted to provide liquidity to our early investors. We felt we owed it to them, but there was zero pressure to go public. Um, in terms of uh, just in general where we might have done better or put a little more emphasis, I'd say there, was, there were a couple of inflection points. I think we would have, um, the, I think we perhaps drove to get to break even and profitability too quickly. Mm. Um, we were pretty financially conservative. We did. Uh, get profitable after a few years. I think instead, if we had invested that money and, and run the company at break even or even a slight loss, there were a couple of years, about five years after we got started, where it could have made an impact on the ultimate market share of the company and the valuation of the company if we had deferred profitability a bit longer. That, that was probably um, the single biggest kind of somewhere between operational and strategic error that we made. Um, there were uh, um, some earlier errors when we were defining the direction of the company that I wish we, put it this way, I don't wish we'd done them differently, but we would have been more successful had we made slightly different decisions. Mm -hmm. There was also a period when so let me just say the following. When you're strategizing where to spend money, um, the first thing you have to do is develop a product. So that takes, that's where you have to spend money irrespective of whether you have revenue or not. You've got to build something or there's no reason for the company to exist. The second thing you have to spend money on is marketing um, because you have to make people aware of the product even bef before there have been any sales. The third is sales, um, and I generally try, once you have a couple of salespeople, I generally try to grow sales with revenue, not in advance of revenue. Uh, 
So the real investment areas are development and marketing, mm. sales. Then you try to um, deal with any product support issues as they loom larger. You have bigger, bigger install base. And fifth is F&A, finance and administration, G&A, whatever you want to call it. And we lagged that. In other words, we spent as little as we could get away with in the early days on that, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, we perhaps could have spent a little bit more there because we had to go through a whole bunch of systems changes mm -hmm. when we got larger. And if we had established those systems a bit earlier on, we would have been better off. But, you know, this is all in hindsight. Um, and uh, overall, I think that rule of development, then marketing, then sales, then support, then G&A or F&A, mm. is a good rule of thumb for an entrepreneur in thinking about how they sequence the expenditures by, by priority. And this goes into something very interesting, which is that, and it seems to be more relevant each day, when I build something, when I create something today, the tools that I'm creating it with, the systems that I build into it uh, will change and the, the, the circumstances will change, the environment will change, and the environment seems to be ha changing very quickly for a lot, particularly for technology and software and stuff like that. Tools get out of date much faster, is that correct? Um, that's correct in some areas. It's not generally true in the enterprise software area where I mean you're selling to enterprises. Um, mm. Enterprises, large organizations, be it corporations or government agencies or whatever, um, are very slow to move because they're already coping with so much technology that they have installed and over decades that it's it's mm, very they're yeah. they're very you know it's one thing to talk about a software startup using say the latest open source tools or or some other set of tools uh, there's one company I'm involved with Alpha and software that uh, produces tools for rapidly building mobile applications. Um, so, you know, if you're going to build something that's totally new, you've got a new team, well, then you can consider using a whole new set of technology. Mm. But if you're a large organization with hundreds or thousands of people, you've got an enormous amount of software already installed and running it is very, very much harder mm. to rapidly change and evolve. So I've certainly been hearing for decades about how uh, technology is accelerating, and um, I think it's probably accelerating about the same rate it has <laughs> been for the last 20 or 30 years. But applying that technology in large organizations, if anything, has slowed down because of the fact they've already got so much to deal with. And interesting. And that just brings to mind this shift between large complex organizations and small nimble organizations, even within the earlier conversation of, you know, anybody listening out there who's starting their company, basically, what do you want to be? Do you want to be, do you want to aim for this large organization or do you want to remain small and nimble? Um, what do you think about this? So if I, if I start a company, this is partly yeah, my own interest, and I never grow above 50, what does that mean in terms of my impact on the world or my impact on other businesses? What is the growth of an organization? Can you have a large impact uh, as a very small organization now with the exponential kind of tools that technology gives us? Um, I think it's very heavily dependent as to what arena you're going to compete yep. in. It's possible to stay small in certain types of service organizations, consultants, and so on, in the IT space. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're going to be a product company, you really have to target a worldwide mm -hmm. market, not just US or North America. Mm -hmm. And if not, um, then you will face heavy competition eventually from from someone who does. So it's situation specific. Um, and the key issue is to define some segment of the market which is highly defensible, where you can do well. And even if some other competitor down the road, larger, better resourced, uh, maybe even better technology, 
comes after you, you can still defend your market segment. Um, either that, or you have to decide, no, that's not going to work. I have to go for the whole market and become the leader, not just a leader, but the leader in that market. Um, so that's a, that's a fascinating strategic challenge. Um, the typical differentiator which allows you to grow is a technical one, meaning there's something about your product that makes it... Uh, you know, radically more desirable than than competitive products, which allows you to grow rapidly uh, until those other competitors catch up or don't catch up, as the case may be. Mm. Um, and clearly, if you get to be a market leader and there are any kind of network effects, um, that is, the number of users, the larger number of users makes the product more desirable, a la social media or something like that. Well, that helps, too. Mm. Um, that's not generally the marketplace that, that I've been involved with, which is much more uh, software and SaaS mm -hmm. and subscription software going into medium to large organizations. Hmm. Yeah, the reason I brought that up was because the WhatsApp only had a 19 employees, when, or it was, it was under 50 employees when they were bought for $19 billion. Um, yeah, you have to remember that the 19 billion was not what the company was worth. Mm -hmm. It was because um, Facebook wanted to not have to compete with them in the future. So those kinds of bizarre mm -hmm. valuations happen once every kind of turn of the technology. Uh, uh, creates a new uh, competitive landscape. Right. Yeah. And you just can't count on that. It, it and it's can, an exception, not the rule. Exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a far out exception. Um, who knows, there's currently talk of forcing Facebook to divest. Mm. And uh, so, you know, in which case their $18 billion will, and whatever they've put into it since then will kind of go down the drain. But um, uh, that was a very, very unique situation mm. which, in which the normal metrics under which a acquisition is made kind of don't apply. Uh, so one of the most interesting questions that this brings up for me, so when you're at the small stage, money is so important for how you make decisions and it's so important as a signal and it's so not immediately there. Uh, then once you get to this larger stage, you can you can you have so much more money for spending things that are kind of ancillary that are not ancillary, but important, but uh, not urgent kind of things like finance like the FMMA you talked about. What is your relationship to money at either a business level or a personal level? What does money mean to you? What does it do? Well, it's access to money for the company um, that matters. So as I mentioned when we went public, um, there were three reasons, one, one of which was the ability to do acquisitions, which is a totally legitimate way to grow a business mm. through acquisition. And you can make acquisitions either by swapping shares, part ownership of the company, with the shareholders of the acquired company, or by paying them cash. And you know, cash comes about either because the company makes money, throws off cash, which a successful software company always does in, in pretty significant amounts, typically. Um, or because you've raised money through an initial public offering or some other way of selling uh, shares in the company to have the cash available. So money matters um, to, an or to a company, to a for-profit company, because it's a way to um, accelerate growth, uh, potentially by having that money available, fend off competition, et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of your basic uh, fuel. Um, speaking personally, um, and I think this is true of most entrepreneurs, um, you, you kind of don't think about it that much. I mean, over time, if an organization is successful, you do well personally. Um, progress was quite generous with stock options, so we made a lot of millionaires and some 10 millionaires. Uh, we didn't make billionaires, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have sort of uh, the equivalent of a super, super successful company where there are multiple billionaires mm -hmm. made out of it. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and other, but you know if, it doesn't change coming to work every day uh, certainly I was happy with the fact that after progress went public um, you know nobody bought a new car or whatever you know some other sign of of wealth or uh, ability to spend money mm. um, people would um, one of the things that was unique about our stock options was that they vested over five years mm. rather than four mm. Uh, but we were quite generous with the stock options, so typically people would vest in four years what they might have gotten in another company, and then they had the fifth year, and the fifth year meant one more year of holding power, meaning they'd be motivated to stay for that extra, for five years rather than the four after the options had been granted. Mm. Um, and yet people were, you know, they'd, they'd take some money off the table, but they were slow to liquidate their positions. Mm. And I took that as a sign of commitment and faith in the future of the company. Um, but to return to the, the original question about cash, I didn't think about it much at a personal level. I certainly thought about it at company level as both a buffer against downturns and an ability to be, to be more aggressive, mm. particularly in the M&A area. So what did you do in order to get that loyalty from people in, in the company in terms of setting up, you know, You've got, you mentioned the equity, but what else about what Progress was doing, what you guys were doing as a, as a management team that was keeping people loyal? Was it things like, you know, benefits or was it just a drive? Yeah, I think it was, we did all the standard things. You know, we had good benefits. We paid reasonably well. Uh, probably half the company was part of a bonus pool that paid off at the end of the year, depending on how we did um, against our goals for the year. And of course the salespeople got commissions that were, could be pretty substantial. So we did all the standard things, but I think it really comes down to the leadership of the company, um, being, um, motivated themselves, communicating their enthusiasm to their, the groups that work with them. It's, 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 there are a lot of little things. There was no executive lunchroom or anything like that. You know, we all ate with everyone else. And I made a point of, for example, and I think the other leadership members of the leadership team made the same point of trying to get to know people I hadn't met before once the company got beyond a couple hundred mm -hmm. people. And, um, you know, sitting down with them at lunch and talking about what they were doing and possibly uh, uh, discussing how it, related to the overall goals of the company. So I think um, there was a, a set of ethics, morals among the leadership team and in their relationships with everyone else in the company that certainly um, gave people a, a sense that if they did well, uh, they would be appropriately rewarded and recognized for what they'd accomplished. Um, but there's you know, there's no magic formula. I think, again, it derives as much from the personality, not just of the CEO, but the CEO and the top, you know, half dozen to dozen people in the company who form, uh, in our case, the executive team that, uh, you know, inculcated itself within the entire organization that there was a basic ethical approach to business that we advocated. That's so interesting. So one of the things that's coming to mind for me is this essentially like when you're doing something, when, you're, when you've got this contrarian thinking pattern and you're thinking about, so taking everything as an axiom and taking an axiom that can be challenged, but then not necessarily throwing away what's been done before and that what it works before, knowing that some of that is based on tradition and based not on, on, on the truth, essentially. How do you bridge this balance between um, challenging the status quo, but then also understanding that there is part of the things that are under the status quo are necessary? So one of the things that we did to deal with that dichotomy uh, was to set up new businesses under separate organizations. In, in some cases, in fact, separate um, legal entities, separate companies. Um, and the idea was that there were certain things, again, if you go back to my scale of 
of product development, marketing, sales, uh, support, and F&A, there's certain things you don't want to duplicate, like F&A. Okay, why run two payroll systems, to give you an extreme example? Um, but if a new product line, or maybe just in the beginning a new product concept, is really targeting either a, a somewhat different market or potentially uh, somewhat different users within the existing market. Anyway, there's difference. You're going to have to approach the marketplace differently. Uh, then it makes sense, in our case, we set up things called product units mm. where um, there would be a, a leader and typically a development and, and QA and doc team that would be dedicated to that product line that lived and breathed and slept with that product line. Um, and, um, and we'd set up rewards so if that product line did well, those people would do disproportionately well, and likewise, if it didn't do well, they'd do less well than the rest of the organization. Mm -hmm. That was kind of our technique, uh, particularly development and uh, product marketing, um, and then the issue of whether we had a, a separate sales force for that new product line or not was one that was debated a lot, and uh, we tried to look at it through the customer's eyes. In other words, if we were selling to a different or kind of organization or a different part, there might be an existing progress account, but we might be selling to a different part of that organization and we might need a separate salesperson to call on that different part of, of the organization. Mm. And uh, so that's the way we drove it. And the idea was that if this succeeded, became sort of standard part of our product line, uh, if it made more sense to be selling both the new product and the old product together, then we could merge the organizations back together. Mm -hmm. But um, that way we, we allowed for new thinking to uh, permeate these new product efforts rather than necessarily trying to convert people who had been working with the old product for a number of years and were very comfortable with it to, to uh, run that. And that's interesting because that I don't know if you've heard this book called Loon Shots by Safi Bacall. Uh, he, he's in the biology sector in Boston, actually. Um, and he wrote this book about how to do that. And you just basically, you guys had figured that out before you wrote that book, which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I'd love to have a little conversation about history and like, and like particularly 1980s. Cause that, when did you start progress software? Early eighties, early eighties. So in this, was before Silicon Valley had really kind of taken that financial or that... No, uh, Silicon yeah. Valley was pretty strong at that point, and that was driven by the semiconductor. Um, the Intel, the early series, the Intel chip, 4004, I think, um, that, was, that was done at Intel probably in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, so the 70s were the age of the mini-computer, um, the 60s were the age of the mainframe when IBM got to be dominant. 70s were the age of the mini-computer. Uh, 1981 or 82 was the launch of the PC, and that was about the time that we got started. Mm. So when did it happen? When did the shift happen from, like, Boston, Silicon Valley? Because those were the two places, oh, right? Oh, right. Um, I think it happened gradually over time, driven by above all by the semiconductor. Uh, I'll give you an ex contra example. Um, Boston is much more of a leader than Silicon Valley in biotech. Well, why is that? Well, because Boston and the Boston area and MIT and Harvard and the Broad Institute, which is some kind of cooperative venture between both institutions, um, they've simply been working at it for 10, 20 years. They've graduated the grad students. They've gone on to start companies and so on and so forth. So um, Silicon Valley over probably over the 80s, more than any 70s and 80s, took away leadership of the IT industry or the computer industry, really, um, based primarily on the microprocessor and semiconductors being done out on the West Coast. And that then drove the development of everything else. Um, whereas 
Boston has sort of given up on that or, or is a secondary player, you know, along with Austin or other places. Mm. Um, and has focused on biotech because that's where it's the clear kite leader. And then where, when did it make, within Silicon Valley, when did it make the switch from hardware to software dominance? Um, they kind of go together. So if you think back to the, so the, the seminal um, issue was the invention of the, of the um, integrated circuit, uh, um, mm. you know, the integrated circuit in general, and then the, you know, quote, computer on a chip, which is all kind of late 60s to mid 70s. So mm. um, the first Intel chip that I mentioned, the 4004, I believe that was turned into a computer by various companies, uh, including Apple, if you think back that far, Apple II, um, and a number of other companies based on the CPM operating system. Uh, and that all happened in the mid to late 70s, so shortly before we got started. Uh, but by the time that we were looking for hardware partners, I would say three out of four were West Coast based. Mm, Maybe a quarter were, were still East Coast based. These are names that no one listening to this will, will ever remember. But there were, there were early uh, Unix box manufacturers and CPM manufacturers that we negotiated with over partnerships in the... Uh, in the uh, say the mid 80s and when was the first time that you used the internet um i first well let's see so the first discovery was unix for me i kept hearing about it about the time we were starting our company and finally actually saw it in operation in the basement of some harvard harvard computing lab um progress was connected to the internet from very early on, which is why, for example, it owns the domain progress.com. But um, I didn't, let's see, it was probably about the same time as the infamous uh, Esther Dyson, I think, or maybe Brother Stewart's conference, mm -hmm. where one year, circa 1992, mm -hmm. no one mentioned the internet and a year or two later, that's all anyone talked about, <laughs> circa 1994 or 93, something like that. Um, and it was probably about that time uh, that uh, uh, Progress got more heavily involved in moving beyond the local area networks that our software was primarily deployed to, to uh, building a version of Progress specifically designed for the internet. It was mm. probably circa 1995. Mm. We built a product called WebSpeed, um, which was uh, this, uh, essentially a, a way to deploy our technology across the internet. Interesting. What was the thing that took you most by surprise from 94 when it really hit to today, maybe? Of, you know? Well, um, you know, the rise of social media is something I never would have predicted and, frankly, am not uh, at all pleased with. <laughs> yeah. uh, which, and which has had one of the most profound effects on us as a species, it seems like. It does, and yeah. I don't think those effects are good, mm -hmm. by and large. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the, the early evolution of the Internet as a um, worldwide communications platform, worldwide web, etc., uh, that was sort of 80, 90% good. Mm. Um, I think the rise of social media has not been as good a factor. Mm. But in terms of, of progress as involvement, well, we were, we certainly didn't invent the internet, <laughs> unlike certain people who claim to have. <laughs> um, but we were pretty early in recognizing that, that that would be a new and better way to deploy the kinds of business applications for which progress technology is uh, had been used on a regular basis. That's so interesting. So for the last like five, 10 minutes here, why, why did you become an entrepreneur? Was it something that you chose? Was it something that chose you? Where, who, like what, why, why did you do it? So um, I'd point to a couple things. One is that our family 
including your brother and you, mm. are traditionally pretty entrepreneurial going back on both sides. Well, mm. in my case, both my father and mother's side for generations. Um, Wait, I didn't realize that Granny, my grandmother, also had entrepreneurial people in her? In her? Yes. Her, her father and father's father um, had various entrepreneurial ventures mm. in Gibraltar. Mm. Um, and um, so our family has traditionally been entrepreneurial, you know, including uh, your grandfather, Stuart, who never really worked much for anyone else and mm. did his, uh, um, pursued his career as a journalist, as an independent. And um, so that's sort of one side of it. The other side was um, the traditional route coming out of uh, MIT of sort of going to work for some large organization. I had a few of those interviews and I remember being horrified at the <laughs> idea of working for some enormous organization. Hmm. And I had worked for a couple large organizations in summer jobs. Hmm. but. Um, when the opportunity came along to, to create a company, and this was before Progress, this is one company back, um, I kind of jumped at it. Mm. So I'd love to hear your, your, your take on what happened to you at M MIT uh, when you got, was he good? no, you didn't get kicked out of MIT, you got kicked out of uh, Groton. Groton. Uh, why, uh, are you comfortable talking about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, that was, uh, so let me describe the scene to you. This is, uh, Groton is a traditional New England prep school. It has an isolated campus, perhaps a mile or more from downtown Groton, which in itself is simply now a far out suburb of, of uh, the Boston area. Back then it was probably viewed as a separate town or village. Um, extremely isolated, extremely boring from Thanksgiving through spring break. Mm. Um, well, after, certainly after Christmas vacation through spring break. And um, so you're always sort of casting about for something to do, whether it's <laughs> officially sanctioned by the leadership <laughs> of, the, of the school or not. And um, uh, along with a couple of friends, I stumbled on the idea of uh, 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 putting a microphone in a uh, cavity below the headmaster study, and that allowed us to uh, listen in to the faculty meetings where they discussed every student and how they were doing and what the disciplinary issues were with that particular individual and so on and so forth. And it was, um, it really livened up uh, normally boring school life <laughs> until it got a little too lively. Um, I'm, I'm skipping a few of the improvements we made technology-wise. <laughs> Um, but eventually they uncovered, uh, partly because we knew too much and... And, uh, and you were giving that away. And we were giving it away to yeah. some extent. And uh, when they came to interrogate us, uh, we kind of had pat answers because we knew what the questions were <laughs> we were going to be asked. And um, so they eventually discovered uh, the microphone and the wire and so on. And... Uh, and uh, threw out two of us in the middle of the spring term, probably about April, and then uh, threw two more out or, or disinvited them to return mm. at the end of the school year. Mm. And how did you make your way to MIT then? I applied. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course the issue of what had happened at oh. Groton School came up and they seemed satisfied with the answer. It didn't seem to... Uh, stand in the way. I don't know if it helped me get in, but uh, <laughs> at any rate, it didn't seem to be an issue for them. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. This has been a pleasure to do this interview. If there's kind of one last thing that my audience might benefit from your long history as a, as a, as an, a CEO, an entrepreneur, or somebody who's kind of broken through the initial barriers, and what would it be? So I'll give you a, a, a saying that came from uh, one of our board members, uh, which I thought encapsulated the attitude that an entrepreneur should have and there were three steps step number one was take the money so his argument was look the deal that and some investor may offer you whether a vc or an angel or whatever 
may never be quite as good as, as what you would like. Maybe you take a little bit less money, but take the money. Um, and the second is stay in the game. In other words, don't run off a cliff, don't crash into a wall, uh, figure out a way to stay alive, uh, you know, cutting expenses where needed as long as you believe in the, you know, the long-term benefit of what you're doing. Don't just crash and burn. And the third thing was don't look back, meaning don't have any regrets, always be looking ahead to the next challenge. Mm. Cool. Thank you so much, Joe. You're welcome.